A new federal appeals ruling limiting access to the abortion pill mifepristone is setting up a showdown in the Supreme Court. It's Thursday, August 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, residents of Maui begin to confront their losses from the Lahaina fire as the confirmed death toll surpasses 100 victims. Also, the Federal Reserve meets today to determine how to proceed with U.S. interest rates. And this hour, we'll have Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on the 2024 elections. People care most about getting their costs down, making sure there are good paying jobs for themselves and their kids. That's what the IRA has done. In sports, Red Sox lose, mostly cloudy and upper 70s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The death toll from the Maui fires has risen to at least 111, with the number expected to grow in the coming days. As the island undertakes the long road to recovery, leaders say it's important to also make sure the economy stays healthy. And as NPR's Jason DeRose reports, that means keeping tourist numbers up. When the fires broke out last week, state and island officials immediately urged tourists not to come. But it's since become clear that most of the damage, although severe, is contained to the western part of Maui. More than half the island's residents have jobs in some way related to the tourism industry. Christian Galapon's aunt works as a housekeeper at a Maui resort. She lost her home in the blaze. You know, people were asking her, like, you just lost everything. Why'd you clock into work? And she's like... I still need to make money. (laughs) Last year, close to 3 million tourists visited the island and spent nearly $5.7 billion. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. Planned Parenthood is awaiting a ruling in a major lawsuit. Texas Tech Public Media Sarah Self-Walrek reports that the state of Texas is suing Planned Parenthood for millions of dollars in Medicaid payments. Texas tried to block Planned Parenthood from getting Medicaid funds in 2015. That didn't happen until 2021. Now, Planned Parenthood estimates it could have to pay more than a billion dollars. It could lead to more clinic closures in Texas. Susan Manning is general counsel for Planned Parenthood. Many of the health care center patients are women, people with low incomes, and people from other communities who have historically faced barriers to care. Conservative Judge Matthew Kazmarek, who has made several high-profile rulings in abortion-related cases, has not said when he will decide in this case. I'm Sarah Self-Walbrick in Lubbock. In California, retailers are struggling as several flash mobs rush into luxury stores and rob them. One of the latest was last weekend at a Nordstrom's when more than 30 masked people rushed into the store, broke display cases, and made offer with around $300,000 worth of merchandise. Governor Gavin Newsom provided additional funds to establish a retail theft task force, and that, police say, led to the arrest of dozens of people wanted in several thefts at different stores in a two-day operation in Bakersfield. California Highway Patrol Chief Rodney Ellison. During these two days of operations, CSP investigators arrested over 50 suspects for charges related to retail theft and recovered nearly $60,000 in product. Police say some of the theft rings are being organized on social media. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher at this hour. Dow futures up two-tenths of a percent. This is NPR News. 
The new film Maestro centers on the relationship between the famed conductor Leonard Bernstein and his wife. As NPR's Mandalita Barco reports, his children are defending the choice by actor Bradley Cooper to portray him wearing a prosthetic nose. Maestro, which Bradley Cooper co-wrote, directed, and stars in, is set to premiere at the Venice Film Festival at the end of this month. It's two, like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a pond. Some viewers complain about Cooper's fake schnoz in playing the late conductor Leonard Bernstein, saying it's an anti-Semitic caricature. It's reignited discussions about casting and Jewish stereotypes. But Bernstein's children say they're perfectly fine with the depiction. Jamie, Alexander, and Nina Bernstein tweeted, quote, It happens to be true that Leonard Bernstein had a nice big nose. We're also certain that our dad would have been fine with it. The Bernsteins say Cooper included them throughout the making of the film. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. A federal judge has declined to approve a settlement in a class action lawsuit against Hyundai and Kia over vehicle thefts, saying it doesn't provide fair and adequate relief to the vehicle owners. The settlement, announced in May, covers around 9 million 2011 to 2022 model years. Judge James Selna noted concerns raised by state attorneys general about the adequacy of the software update the automakers want to provide for those vehicles. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher. Dow futures up two-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up one-tenth. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. MBTA stations along the red line may soon be stocked with naloxone or Narcan. That's the nasal spray that can reverse an opioid overdose. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports the initiative is part of a new state budget. The budget includes nearly $100,000 for three naloxone boxes at each red line station. Jay Garg, with Harvard's Overdose Prevention Group, began lobbying for this project with a few fellow students after seeing that about 10% of overdoses in Cambridge happen at T-stops. Narcan reverses overdoses. It's pretty cheap. It saves lives and it doesn't have serious side effects even when you use it on someone who's not having an overdose. So it should be in those places. A spokesman says the MBTA hopes to develop a plan in the coming months and notes that transit police already carry Narcan. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The state will offer nursing certification exams in languages other than English starting next year. The new language options for certified nursing assistants will include Spanish and Chinese to start. The effort to make the exams more accessible was included in the newly passed state budget. Advocates for the change say the English-only exam prevented many qualified candidates from working in the field. The Catholic Diocese of Worcester is implementing a new policy around gender at its schools. The new rules say that staff and students cannot use pronouns that aren't aligned with their sex assigned at birth. It also says students can't advocate for or celebrate LGBTQ plus relationships. Under the new policy, students must also use restrooms that match their assigned sex at birth. The diocese tells the Telegram and Gazette the update is meant to keep education in line with Catholic beliefs.
The Air Force is seeking public comment on the future use of a former hand grenade range on Joint Base Cape Cod. The 20-acre site was used to practice throwing grenades in the 1940s and 50s. Air Force civil engineers, along with local environmental officials, say the site poses no risk to people. Joint Base officials tell the Cape Cod Times they are already working to restore the area. It's 708. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. The Red Sox could not keep up with the Washington Nationals last night. The team lost their second game in D.C. with a final score of 6-2. to two. The Sox rallied to tie the game at the top of the eighth inning, but they ultimately gave up back-to-back home runs. The teams will play again this afternoon to see who wins the series. There's a chance of some patchy fog and drizzle this morning, otherwise cloudy today with highs in the upper 70s. Tonight, the clouds stick around and temperatures dip into the 60s. There's a chance of rain overnight. Then there's a good chance our Friday will start with showers, thunderstorms, and gusty winds, and those may last through most of the afternoon. Otherwise, it'll be overcast and we'll have high temperatures in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. In a few minutes, an appeals court upholds a patient's right to an abortion pill with restrictions. But first, the Watergate scandal led to President Richard Nixon's resignation in 1974. It set a standard for presidential wrongdoing. But ex-president Donald Trump's alleged criminality now appears set to far exceed that standard. Should the four indictments currently brought against him ultimately win out in court? Our colleague Stephen Skeep spoke earlier about all this with Jill Weinbanks. She served as an assistant special prosecutor in the Watergate investigation. I want to ask a question that I think you have been asked 47,000 times before, um, but I think it is a reasonable place to start. How do the accusations against Trump in trying to overturn an election compare to Watergate? There's no comparison in my mind. The actions of Donald Trump leading up to January 6th and continuing to this day, to me, are much more dangerous to democracy than anything Richard Nixon did. Richard Nixon was guilty. He was a crook. He should have been indicted. He shouldn't have been pardoned. But what he did is child's play compared to what happened. I believe his pardon enabled what happened. But I never feared for democracy the way I do now. Let's remember what it was that Nixon did. Uh, Aides and associates of Nixon conducted a burglary of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C., and the investigation of that led to a lot of other political so-called dirty tricks. Did Nixon at some level accept that democratic system? He needed to listen to the will of the people and deal with reality. He did. He knew shame, and he was told that he would be convicted in the Senate on the charges of impeachment that had been voted if he didn't resign, and he resigned. He never acknowledged officially, uh, and in fact probably denied in the David Frost interview that he was guilty because he said it's not illegal if you're the president. But he did respond to the will of the people. It was clear that he had lost the 
support of America and of his own party. This was a time of bipartisanship. It was a time of facts. And everybody accepted the facts, including him, which was that he had been found to have plenty of evidence against him showing his guilt, and he resigned. As you investigated the president, and again, this is a sitting president who had been elected and then re-elected, did the public support you? We had huge public support, and we never had the kind of lack of facts that exists now. So we always had more support than I think um, some people in America now give to the special prosecutor. Did you also face uh, fierce criticism or even threats? Richard Nixon used the words witch hunt, and he did do some of that, but no threats. I never felt that there would be a mob attack on the office or on the Department of Justice or on the Capitol building. Um, I never felt in personal danger. What have you thought about in recent times as election officials, investigators, and others have been smeared on social media and sometimes have faced threats or worse? I am disgusted and appalled and saddened because I know how much these people work at getting the truth and go on the law and the facts. There is no motivation behind them that is anything other than discovering the truth. And crimes are reported and investigated, and either information is found or isn't. And the evidence laid out in current indictments makes it very clear that they have strong cases that will go to trial. And I believe a jury, even with MAGA cult members on it, would convict him. You believe that a jury would convict Trump even if there is a really strong Trump supporter on the jury? I think so, and I take my encouragement from the Paul Manafort trial in which there was a MAGA juror who spoke to the press afterwards and said it was clear that he did all the things that were alleged and I had to vote to convict him on all counts. And I believe jurors take the instructions from the judge very seriously and that they will pay attention to the evidence and will say guilty, unlike what happened in the impeachment where they had to say not guilty, even though they knew he was guilty. What they meant was, we're not willing to impeach him, even though he did those things, which is a different conclusion. It sounds like you have faith that the system is gonna work here. I do. I have seen it work before, and I think it will again. Jill Wine-Banks, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for talking. It was a pleasure. A federal appeals court issued a ruling on the abortion medication mifepristone yesterday. The FDA approved mifepristone 23 years ago, and today it's widely used. Medication abortions account for about half of all abortions in the U.S. And for now, mifepristone is still available any place abortion is legal. But Wednesday's ruling sets the stage for the Supreme Court to weigh in on that. NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin is covering this story, and she's with us now to, to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So so tell us what this ruling does broadly. So a panel of judges at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans decided that mifepristone should still have FDA approval, but it should be much harder to access. 
So as a reminder, this case came out of Texas from several medical groups and doctors that oppose abortion. They challenged the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone and the changes it made later to how the medicine is prescribed. So on Wednesday, this appeals court agreed with those challengers in part and said the FDA should never have made it easier to prescribe mifepristone. Nothing changes yet, though, because the Supreme Court ruled in April that access to mifepristone must remain the same until it gets a chance to weigh in. So when could that happen? And what could change at that point? The Supreme Court could hear oral arguments in this case as soon as this fall. Um, Its decision could be different than this appeals court ruling, but if it's the same, access to this drug would change dramatically. So under yesterday's ruling, access would essentially be rolled back to before 2016 when doctors needed to prescribe this medication in person and there were other restrictions. Here's how Greer Donnelly put it. She is a health law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. It would cause pretty significant changes to the status quo in terms of how pills are accessed in this country. Changes like no more telehealth appointments for mifepristone and no access after those very first few weeks of pregnancy. And this would be nationwide. So the ruling would reach out into states that have been working to protect access to abortion and change things for patients and doctors in those states too. Was this ruling expected or is it a surprise? It was definitely not a surprise. This was a panel of three judges. They were all appointed by Republican presidents. Two were appointed by former President Trump. In the hearing, they really hammered attorneys for the FDA and Danco, which is the pharmaceutical company behind Mifepristone. The Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the plaintiffs in this case, was thrilled by the ruling and called it a significant victory. The Department of Justice released a statement saying it strongly disagrees with the decision and will be seeking Supreme Court review. And of course, this is the same court, the same Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade last year. What is our expectation about how they're going to respond to this ruling? I mean, we will have to wait and see what happens, but many legal experts say this case has some weaknesses, especially when it comes to the plaintiff's argument that they have standing to sue. So Mary Ziegler is a law professor at UC Davis who's written books about the history of abortion. My impression is that this is the Fifth Circuit trying to resurrect what had been a pretty flawed case in the hope that this Supreme Court is conservative enough that there's no case too weak or extreme really for this court on abortion. I think many people will remember there was a separate federal case on Mifepristone, which was led by Democratic states. Where is that now? Yeah, so a federal judge in Washington state agreed with the challengers who said that FDA was being too restrictive when it came to Mifepristone. And Ziegler says these conflicting lower court rulings makes it more likely the Supreme Court will take this up. So that's what will likely happen next. That's NPR Selena Simmons. And Selena, thank you. Thank you. It's that time of year again, back to school season. And as parents and teachers fill their carts with supplies, they might experience a jolt of sticker shock. In a recent survey, the National Retail Foundation found families with children in elementary through high school plan to spend a little more than $890. That's up from last year's record, which was already an all-time high. Corey Gordon is CEO of the Kids in Need Foundation. It's a nonprofit that works with students and teachers from under-resourced schools across the country. For Gordon, this line of work is personal. He knows the feeling of walking into a classroom empty-handed, and he wants to keep other kids from having to go through that. 
It's really not their issue. It's not their problem to solve. It's something that we as adults need to do, just like adults stepped into my life to assist me. Inflation and supply chain issues are just some of the factors driving up costs for students and parents. And they're not the only ones taking a hit. Some teachers are using their own money to make sure students have the tools they need. Gordon says it's the basics, pencils and notebooks, that help ensure a student's success. It's those core basic essential items that really are what is needed the most and what teachers actually wind up spending the most money paying for. So even you know those basic types of things are the, the tools of the trade, so to speak, for the kids when they're in school. Carmen Daniels also works to get school supplies to those who need them. She's a resource coordinator at Hayes Porter School in Cincinnati. One of my uh, my third grade teacher, he calls me the director of procurement. <laughs> He'll say, "Miss Daniels, I need this. Can you go get it?" And I really do try my best, um, you know, to get it for our school. Daniels helps connect students, teachers, and parents with a nonprofit called Crans to Computers that gathers donated classroom supplies for distribution to classrooms in need. She will arrange shopping trips where they can stock up for a small access fee. They'll have games and prizes and stuff that you can win. It's just a fun environment when you go shopping, and it's always good when you don't have to pay when you leave. Just to see the relief on someone's face, not having to worry about something that I have available, it's a blessing. And that can make the start of the school year a little less stressful for teachers, parents, and students. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who's among the Democrats using the first anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act to lay the groundwork for messaging they hope will help win the 2024 elections. It's 721. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Overcast today with a high near 76. Tonight it stays cloudy and falls to lows in the upper 60s. There's a good chance of showers overnight, then a rainy Friday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms through mid-afternoon that may bring gusty winds. High temperatures will be around 84. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean. Offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. When Louis Cato took over as music director for The Late Show, 
host Stephen Colbert made sure to let the audience know Cato is someone special. He is a musical genius. He can basically play... He can basically play every instrument on that stand over there. Give him an afternoon, he'll learn how to play Mozart on a shoehorn. <laughs> Take a look at myself. How did you get into music to begin with, and how is it that you have mastered so many instruments? I got into music initially as a toddler, as a drummer and a singer, drumming and singing with my mother in church. First of all, I don't know who gives a toddler a drum kit, okay? But that's like... <laughs> I think about that like, all oh. the time. I think about that all the time. <laughs> Louis Cato told us that a big part of his job on The Late Show is to manage the studio audience. I'm sort of like the, the test buoy. If the audience is, for example, a little bit more reserved, I lean in that much more. I want to make sure that when Stephen comes out, I take it as a part of my job to make sure that that synergy has a great foundation energetically. But Cato has another side that audiences don't usually get to hear. He's pouring a lot of raw emotion into his new album, Reflections. He says this new record takes a different approach to the classic love song. Forget about everything I thought I knew of love. It's all obsolete. Like traditional love stories, boy meets girl, or girl meets girl, boy meets boy, and it's all sunshine and rainbows, and like, the next moment anything goes wrong, you're trying to figure out what could have gone wrong, it was so perfect, but nothing's really perfect. I wasn't ready for reflections when she came in my world. I was too scared to face my own fears. I could see them in her. I was writing sort of from the place of sort of been being hit with that initial honeymoon swoon phase with like an undertone of awareness of it was a meeting, just as much of a meeting of our insecurities as of our better selves. Forget about everything I thought I knew of I have to say, it's poppy, but this is very much grown folks' yes. music here. Yes. Did something happen that made you feel, you know what, I don't want the easy answer anymore. I don't want the, I don't want the easy breakup song. I don't want the easy I'm in love song. I want something different. I mean... Without going too deep into the weeds of any one thing, sort of all the things in my personal life ran their course. You know how the universe will sort of bring the same lessons back around until you learn them? Hmm. I, f I felt that in almost every area of my life. And what was my marriage at the time, my career, dealing with loss, uh, across all of those things. All in all, it's my fault, too, because I fell out of love with you. And that's a cross I'll have to bear. Never meant to cause you pain, and I'm hurting just to sing. I don't blame you. 
saying it ain't fair. I could no longer sustain my idea of who I should be. I had to surrender that in order to begin to find out who I am and exist as that. Is that why Human? You've said Human is your favorite song on the album. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very, yes. you know, vulnerable song. So many faces to put on So many reasons to hide So let it be that I keep on Holding these ponderings inside I'm just really struck by how much of this album is an interrogation of ego. Your, oh, yes. You know, and what we are drawn to is so often ourselves, right? We like how we are reflected in the other person's gaze. Wow. Ex oh, you're right. You're right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally could not have said it better myself. I don't think I have said it better myself. Well, you kind of did in the album, so there's that. But I mean... <laughs> what am I willing to give up? What am I willing to try? Maybe exposing these demons is the only way I will survive. How do you feel now that you you put this out there for not just for yourself to see and hear and people who know you and love you to see and hear, but for all of us. It feels really clear. Sort of like I would liken it to the feeling of having a perhaps challenging at times, but necessary conversation. And that feels infinitely more clear than them floating around in my headspace wondering what if and any number of imaginary scenarios that you do like when you need to get things out. That is Louis Cato. He is the leader of the Late Show Band and we've been talking about his new album, Reflections. Louis Cato, thank you so much for reflecting with me and talking about uh, your beautiful work and your new album and everything that's going on. Ah, oh, Michelle Martin, thank you so much for talking with me. Under the firmament, under the sun, every word has been spoken, every note has been sung. Do I follow my northern star this is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Despite noise complaints, pickleball remains America's fastest growing sport, and now it's heading indoors so people can play year-round. It's 7.30. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More human remains have been found in the rubble of charred houses, businesses, and vehicles in Hawaii, where wildfires on Maui left widespread destruction. The death toll has risen to 111. The state's governor says search teams with dogs have examined less than half the area affected by the fires. The town of Lahaina was largely destroyed. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer is on Maui. There's a lot to be cautious about as they go through the burn area. Uh, For one thing, it's extraordinarily difficult to identify and even to find human remains. Uh, I talked with a forensic anthropologist, and she said it really takes a trained expert eye to spot, say, bone fragments in the rubble. And then there's a huge concern about toxics. This fire burns so many buildings and vehicles that it unleashed just a whole stew of hazardous chemicals. So search and rescue teams are moving extremely methodically. Human rights in North Korea is expected to come before the U.N. Security Council today. Here's Linda Fasulo. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said last week that human rights abuses in North Korea facilitate the country's advancement of its illicit nuclear and ballistic missile programs. And she stressed that the Security Council must address the crimes perpetrated by Pyongyang against its own people and others. China opposes the meeting. North Korea has denounced it. No Security Council action is expected. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. A Boston nonprofit wants to expand access to the nation's top colleges for top-performing, low-income students of color. WBUR's Max Larkin has a closer look at the high-intensity Summer Academy program hosted at Amherst College. Students admitted to the Thrive program are academic stars, but many miss out on one-on-one college counseling or calculus class at their own high schools. Thrive's six-week summer academies try to make that right, with intensive coursework and college prep. Dan Navisky is Thrive's executive director for Greater Boston. We're closing the opportunity gap for students like ours who, just by virtue of where they grew up, are often attending schools that don't have the same resources as some of their suburban or private school peers. The Boston-based nonprofit plans to add 10 new sites in the next five years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Members of the Massachusetts Republican Party are suing their new party leader. The group claims committee woman Amy Carnevale wrongly dropped an older lawsuit filed against the party's treasurer. The Boston Globe reports the complaint argues dropping the original suit was a breach of fiduciary responsibility. In a statement, Carnivale says she expects the new suit to be dismissed. Officials are investigating another close call between planes at Logan Airport. The Federal Aviation Administration says an American Airlines jet was forced to stop a takeoff Monday to avoid a Spirit Airlines plane on the ground. Investigators say no one was injured during the incident. This is the latest near-contact incident between aircraft at Logan. In March, two planes clipped each other on the tarmac. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, with local, handcrafted, and sustainably sourced furniture. Seven locations and a new one in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. The Red Sox are coming off a four-run loss to the Nationals. The final score was 6-2. to two. That leaves the series tied. They'll play again this afternoon in D.C. to see who comes out on top. Highs in the mid-70s today under cloudy skies. Still overcast tonight, and it falls into the 60s. Rain possible overnight. 
Then cloudy skies may give way to showers and thunderstorms Friday morning through mid-afternoon. Highs tomorrow will be in the low 80s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. This week marks the one-year anniversary of one of President Biden's big legislative achievements, the Inflation Reduction Act. The top Senate Democrat says the act frames a key contrast with Republicans heading into the 2024 election. They're busy investigating. We're busy investing in America. Ask yourself, which one does the public want? NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh sat down with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, and she's here now to tell us about it. Good morning, Deirdre. Good morning, Layla. So one of the criticisms of the Inflation Reduction Act is that people don't know what it's doing or if it's doing anything. What was Schumer's response to that? He admitted it's going to take some time, and he said just like the economy, there's a lag between when some key indicators come out and when Americans actually feel things are getting better. We believe if we persist, if we're constantly showing the implementation of the IRA, that by the time uh, next summer rolls around, uh, people will know it and know it well. And by the way, I'd say the same thing about the economy. Usually when people draw a snapshot about the economy, you know, it takes a while. So they're looking six months back, and six months back, inflation was worse. Six months back, uh, the economy was less robust. But six months from now, they're going to see a much better economy, and they're going to see costs going down. But right now, the news cycle is consumed with former President Trump's fourth indictment, Hunter Biden's legal issues. Isn't there a danger for Democrats that this act won't break through? I mean, Schumer really waved off the idea that Democrats' message is going to be overshadowed at all by all the legal Trump news and Hunter Biden news. He argued the cumulative effect of the IRA is something voters are going to feel personally. He kind of just dismissed the Hunter Biden probes. What he said is just Washington usual background noise. People care most about getting their costs down, making sure there are good paying jobs for themselves and their kids. That's what the IRA has done. And I believe by the time the election gets closer, that will be the dominant thing in people's mind, not any of this stuff. And yet West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who helped write the bill, has been critical of it in recent weeks. He said parts need to be repealed. How did Schumer respond to that? He downplayed Manchin's criticisms. Remember, Manchin is up for re-election in 2024, and Democrats have a really narrow majority. He hasn't announced yet whether he's going to run for his Senate seat. Schumer stressed he has a good relationship with Manchin and that West Virginia is going to benefit from this law. There are going to be parts that Senator Manchin never liked and will say he opposes. That's fair enough. There are lots of things he said he likes in that bill and in the agreement that we had. And so, uh, no, I don't think it hurts us at all. Democrats have a narrow Senate majority and will have to defend in several red states. Does Schumer think the IRA is going to help Democrats in those states over the line? 
He really is betting it is. In places like Ohio, West Virginia, Montana, he's saying that the law is going to be a central theme for Democrats. They'll be able to point to specific battery plants and other projects stemming from the law as examples of how people are getting new jobs. Schumer noted that Republicans who didn't vote for the law are showing up at ribbon cuttings for new projects. He also said abortion is going to be a big issue in next year's election, just like it was in the 2022 midterms. But Schumer said the economic message and the message about Democrats defending reproductive rights were not going to be mutually exclusive. In the end, the majority leader predicted a strong Democratic tide in 2024 that's going to help Democrats keep that majority. But, you know, 15 months is an eternity in politics, so a lot can happen between now and next November. So true. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks, Layla. On Maui, crews continue the difficult work of trying to find and identify the remains of those who died in the wildfire that destroyed the historic town of Lahaina. But while the world has focused on the devastation in Lahaina, there is another wildfire still burning in the hills of Maui, some 25 miles away. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports from Kula, and he tells us that that fire has destroyed scores of homes there and left residents struggling with loss. The Kula, or upcountry fire as it's called, moved with explosive speed. The wind whipped it up a gulch behind Kyle Ellison's home on the edge of Haleakala National Park, one of Maui's natural gems. Ellison looked over to his wife and asked, do you smell that? We looked behind us and you just have smoke billowing out of the gulch 100 yards behind us. The wildfire quickly jumped to a cluster of homes nearby, including the one Ross Hart and his family have lived in for 36 years. Sparks blew up over, looked like wildfire and brimstone. It was beautiful, but dangerous. With several of his neighbors last Tuesday night, Hart fought the flames hard with a mix of garden and fire hoses until the water pressure just died. Fountains of embers and choking smoke, he says, soon took over. As I watched the house start to catch fire in one corner, I ran in the house, grabbed my guitar and threw it in the truck and was gone. The house where Hart raised his four kids is now only ash and debris. In the gray and black mess, what looks like a bright blue rock recovered in the rubble catches my eye. Yeah, it was a vase full of colored stone like marbles. They just melted down and the colored stones are inside. This mountainside community in Kula is nestled around the volcano more than 3,000 feet above sea level. It boasts lush flora and fauna, rare species, and stunning views of the Pacific. But the rough terrain, with its winding gulches and forests, has made it much harder for firefighters to contain the blaze. The fire so far has destroyed at least 19 homes and dozens of other structures. Days after it started, firefighting helicopters still circle overhead, making run after run at a fire that has scorched some 700 acres. Ross is now sleeping in a house owned by his church. This entire small community is mourning dead and missing friends in devastated Lahaina, while also reeling from its own less talked about losses. The fire's still going up here. Do you guys feel a little bit forgotten given all the attention on Lahaina? No, we just don't want to get forgotten. People like FEMA and stuff, we haven't even seen them yet. So just like in parts of West Maui, this community quickly kicked into gear, creating its own relief effort. Local resident Nico Senna has been working long days, giving away goods at this pop-up roadside tent. Canned foods, protein bars, diapers, you know, female uh, hygiene stuff. And water. 
Because complicating everything, the fire polluted the water supply here, as it did in parts of West Maui. The Kula community has been told not to use the water for anything, because it likely contains benzene and other dangerous contaminants. We've been advised not even to turn water on without ventilation and to not boil the water or anything because that expels the gases. And ahead of possible storms next week, officials say they're considering cutting off power as a precautionary measure, something they did not do in Lahaina or here in Kula last week. Meantime, the community here says it will continue to rely on itself. You get plenty of food, Auntie. <laughs> Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Kula, Maui. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Thursday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, with more than 1,000 people unaccounted for, the search continues for victims of the devastating wildfires in Maui as survivors begin to assess the damage. Cloudy and mid-70s today, overcast and upper 60s tonight, rain overnight with showers and thunderstorms likely Friday morning through mid-afternoon. It'll be in the mid-70s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. A Boston-based car subscription service is the latest company to announce layoffs. Flexcar laid off 20 people last week. The company has more than 100 employees in the state. It tells the Boston Business Journal layoffs were necessary to keep prices low for customers. Framingham's first mayor is now leading Life Sciences Care's Boston arm. Yvonne Spicer will head the nonprofit connecting biotech companies with nonprofits in their communities. Spicer says she looks forward to using her experience leading a city through a pandemic for the role. The chef of an acclaimed noodle bar in Lynn is putting her own spin on New England summer staples. Rachel Miller has opened Nightshade Clam Shack by her restaurant, Nightshade Noodle Bar. The pop-up is only open for weekend lunches through the summer. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Pickleball, it's the fastest growing and maybe the noisiest sport in the country. Now, indoor courts are popping up all over because people want to keep playing year-round. NPR's Aaron Kinney has the story. Will and Denise Richards love pickleball. Here's Denise. 
once you start playing, it really clears your head because you really can't focus on anything else other than playing pickleball. A couple of years ago, they wanted to keep playing even when it got cold outside in the winter. On a trip to Pennsylvania, friends took them to some indoor courts. It turned out indoor was a loose term. The courts were inside of a barn and freezing cold. This is Will. It wasn't the best experience, but when you're truly addicted to pickleball, you will play anywhere. But the Richards knew they could do better than that. So they started their own pickleball business. I met up with them at one of their locations in North Bethesda, Maryland, which was formerly a trampoline park. There's no handbook on how to run a pickleball place. It's pretty much like the wild, wild west right now where people are trying to figure it out. Denise previously worked in sales. Will managed Domino's franchises. Now they both work full time for this business. They offer memberships starting at $33 per month. And they've opened three locations in less than a year, one in a former warehouse. Recently, a mall owner reached out to them. We're like, this is a really cool use and it would be a great addition to our property. And we started looking at multiple pickleball operators. That's Carmen Spinoso, the CEO of Spinoso Real Estate Group. His company approached Will and Denise to open a location in one of his malls. Spinoso has been in the mall business for over 30 years, and he said recreation venues like pickleball courts are driving foot traffic. It's competitive and it's fitness, it's fun, it's fast. It's a cool thing. I really like it a lot. The indoor courts are also good for players who want more places to play. Another perk, air conditioning. Indoor courts could also solve another conflict, says real estate researcher James Cook. And then there's the noise issue, especially in the city. For whatever reason, people are really annoyed by the sound of pickleball. So having that in an enclosed shopping center that's not immediately next to residential, that makes a lot of sense too. Another problem for pickleball? Angry tennis players. That's right, many outdoor pickleball courts overlap with tennis courts, forcing players to duke it out over shared playing space. Riley Newman is a professional pickleball player who also played tennis in college. If there was more indoor options, I think that would help some of that divide, um, where pickleball players know exactly where to go to, and they can go kind of to the designated pickleball facilities instead of kind of taking over tennis courts, which I know ruffles some feathers. Newman plays for the DC Pickleball team, which is part of Major League Pickleball. That league is growing rapidly, and it has attracted celebrity owners like LeBron James and Tom Brady. The pros are still competing outside for now, but Newman is confident more indoor courts are on the way. It's coming, and just uh, grab your seatbelt because it is uh, gonna take you for a ride. Aaron Kinney, NPR News. So, Layla, do you play? Have you no. tried it? Mm -mm. Like no. most sports, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> what is your sport? Is it like napping or napping? What? <laughs> is a good, I love. I do work out, but I'm not. I'm not very coordinated. I played all the sports in high school. Okay, but the good. thing about pickleball, you could get the shoes, oh, and just tell people you play it. I, I don't know. Okay. It's, it's a thing. You could. I'll just you could like, try. I'll just say I play pickleball, guys. These are my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would do. This is NPR News. Coming up at 820 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we hear from the president of the Florida Education Association as teachers and principals in the state deal with chaos and confusion over how to implement new black history teaching standards. It's 749. 
Former President Donald Trump faces his fourth indictment in four months, this time for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. It's much bigger than Watergate. Trump wanted to stay in office. He wanted to use Georgia to, as part of that plan. And so this is very different and much more troubling. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The governor of Hawaii is vowing to protect local landowners from being bought out by outside developers once Maui rebuilds from the deadly wildfires there. A new federal appeals ruling limiting access to the abortion pill Mifepristone is setting up a showdown in the U.S. Supreme Court. And dozens of migrants headed to Spain are feared dead after a boat that launched from Senegal with over 100 people on board was rescued off the coast of Cabo Verde with only 38 people on board. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Mid-70s today under cloudy skies. Those clouds stick around tonight as it falls to the 60s. There's rain possible overnight, and on Friday, there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms that may bring gusty winds. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. One of Europe's longest-serving prime ministers, the Netherlands' Mark Rutte, is stepping down, clearing the way for new elections in the country in November. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from The Hague that voters will have plenty of parties to choose from. In his 13 years as the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte earned the overused nickname Teflon Mark for his ability to slip through one crisis after another. But last month, after squabbling amongst the four parties that make up Rutte's coalition government over Dutch asylum policy, Rutte threw in the political towel. It's no secret that the coalition partners have very different views on migration policy. And today, unfortunately, we have to conclude that those differences are irreconcilable. That's why I will immediately offer the resignation of the entire cabinet to the king in writing. Rutte will stay on as caretaker prime minister until elections November 22nd. And while migration ultimately triggered Rutte's resignation, Dutch political journalist Rick Rutten says the problems go deeper. You could already see that things were headed this way over a year ago when Rutte had to form this government. And it was right around that time that it became clear that most parties in parliament were pretty much done dealing with him. Rutten says over the past 13 years under Rutte as prime minister, the Dutch parliament had developed what he called Rutte fatigue. He's seen as this great politician, very skilled in making agreements, making coalitions with everyone and everything. But of course, when you've been able to do that for quite a while, you're going to make some enemies as well. Rutten says Mark Rutte gained a reputation as a leader who was open to governing with any political party, spreading himself thin, and he always seemed to escape blame when his governments collapsed. But political scientist Vote van der Berg of the University of Amsterdam says Rutte was merely a product of the splintered Dutch electorate. In a country like the Netherlands, with so many different parties that all have a minority, you always have to build coalitions. You need leaders who are able to wheel and deal and compromise. In the latest poll, the party with the most support, a coalition of Greens and Social Democrats, was ahead with just 18 percent of Dutch voter support. 
The number of seats in the Dutch parliament is determined by each party's share of the national vote. Thunderberg says that means the Netherlands has become one of Europe's most individualized societies when it comes to politics. People don't identify with a single party, which means that they can easily switch between parties, especially if different parties are ideologically very similar. They easily switch on the base of one single issue. A single issue like climate change. Dutch farmers have shut down highways with their tractors in recent years in protests aimed at the government's proposed ban on nitrogen emissions, a plan that could force farmers to reduce herds, use less fertilizer, and eventually shut down their farms. A political party, the Farmer Citizen Movement, was born. And in a Senate election in March, it won 16 of the Netherlands' 75 Senate seats, more than any other political party. And it's currently polling third going into the fall election campaign season. Outside the Dutch Parliament in The Hague, National Library employee Hans Janssen eats lunch next to a fountain. He says he doesn't think the many single-issue parties in the Netherlands are helping improve things. They're merely reflecting the polarization among voters and gaining power from it. That's not good for society if there's too much left and too much right. Social media is not helping in that respect, I think. So there's a lot of clashing everywhere. A lot of people have a court lunche, as we call it, a short fuse. That's a society we seem to be in. Janssen voted for one of the coalition partners in Mark Rutte's failed government, but he agrees it's time for Rutte to go. There's been talk that Rutte is interested in heading NATO or even the European Union, but he's dispelled these rumors. Janssen says whoever replaces Rutte after the November elections will continue to face big challenges in uniting Dutch voters. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, The Hague. This week, Russia's central bank announced a significant hike in the country's key interest rate. The move comes as the government tries to stem a months-long slide of the ruble due to the sanctions Western countries have imposed over the invasion of Ukraine. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports. The ruble has shed more than a third of its value this year, but alarm bells didn't go off until the Russian currency hit triple digits to the dollar, 100 rubles to the dollar this week. They're laughing at us overseas, says Vladimir Solovyov, a key Kremlin propagandist on his daily talk show. The ruble, said Solovyov, is now one of the worst currencies in the world, thanks to a central bank that won't even bother to tell the people what's happening. Russian economist Maxim Mironov, a professor at the IE Business School in Madrid, says blaming bureaucrats to deflect blame from the Kremlin is a tactic that dates back to the czars. The Tsar is good, but his aides are bad. Mironov says it is the Kremlin that's responsible for Russia's currency woes, just as it's responsible for the invasion of Ukraine in February of last year that prompted them. Because before February, uh, exchange rate of ruble was uh, really market rate, so you have supply and demand. Starting from February, it stopped being a normal currency. Neronov says the Kremlin started manipulating the ruble's value, imposing restrictions and price controls amid Western sanctions. Yet that solution has run into trouble over the past year, as losses fueled by massive military spending and a Western price cap on Russian oil exports have cut into energy revenues. In an emergency session this week, the central bank moved to prop up the currency by raising the key interest rate three and a half percentage points, up to 12 percent, a jump that nudged the ruble's value up slightly. Whether that calms the waters remains to be seen. 
seen. The Kremlin may even have an interest in keeping the ruble relatively weak. It allows the government to maintain a surge in wartime spending at nearly half the price, albeit at the risk of inflation and a growing budget deficit. Still, the economist Moronov says Russia's economy faces no danger of immediate collapse or of Putin's war chest running dry as many in the West have wished. I think it's wishful thinking. He's going to have enough money for the war, and I wouldn't bank on the possibility that he's going to run out of money. Never. More likely, he argues, the Russian leader will scrimp on social programs that could make life more difficult for average Russians as the war drags on. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This afternoon on All Things Considered, as the nation becomes more polarized, America's civil fabric is fraying. In upstate New York, after years of ugly environmental disputes, people are trying to change that with a civic experiment centered around New York's Adirondack Park. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or ask for your member station by name. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Overcast in mid-70s today, cloudy in upper 60s tonight, a chance of rain overnight, then cloudy tomorrow with showers and thunderstorms likely. Those may bring gusty winds. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Residents in the capital of Canada's Northwest Territories have been ordered to evacuate as wildfires approach the city of 20,000 people. It's Thursday, August 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, survivors of devastating wildfires in Maui say they're frustrated by the slow federal response. Also, we hear about efforts to reduce recidivism in California a common space within the reimagined prison where correctional officers and residents can interact and support each other. And we visit a Boston-based nonprofit's summer program helping high school students from low-income neighborhoods who want to attend elite universities. We're closing the opportunity gap for students like ours who are often attending schools that don't have the same resources as some of their suburban or private school peers. Mostly cloudy in upper 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The death toll in Lahaina has risen to at least 111, with hundreds still listed as missing. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green says with less than half the burned area inspected by search and recovery teams, he expects the death toll to keep rising. NPR's Liz Baker has more. More forensic experts are on their way to Lahaina to help ID remains. Only a small number of the confirmed dead have been publicly identified so far. 
Maui Emergency Management Administrator Herman Andaya responded to questions about why his agency didn't use emergency sirens to warn residents, saying the public is trained to associate the sound with tsunamis. Had we sounded the siren that night, we're afraid that people would have gone Malka or on the mountainside. And if that was the case, then they would have gone into the fire. Later, Andaya contradicted himself, saying people were indoors and wouldn't have heard the sirens over gusting winds. Governor Green has launched a fact-finding investigation into what happened that night. Liz Baker, NPR News. A federal appeals court ruled against the FDA in a case about a key abortion pill. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, there are no changes to access to mifepristone for now. On Wednesday, a panel of judges at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans sided with abortion opponents and said the FDA should never have made it easier to prescribe mifepristone, a key drug that's used in medication abortions. Greer Donnelly is a health law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. No one who has been following this case is going to be surprised at this outcome. This was considered a conservative panel of three judges who had already signaled this is how they would rule. However, the Supreme Court has said access to mifepristone won't change until it has a chance to weigh in on the case. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. The Atlanta prosecutor who got an indictment against former President Donald Trump and 18 others this week wants to take the case to trial in March. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis also wants defendants arraigned the week of September 5th. Trump and the others are accused of committing crimes to keep Trump in power after he lost the election in 2020. Researchers made big steps in animal-human transplants this week after two separate research teams in New York and Alabama transplanted a pig's kidney into a brain-dead person. It's now been working for a month in one person. The other two kidneys lasted for a week. Surgeon Jamie Locke says the pig's kidneys are genetically edited, made urine, and also did something else important. They cleared the body of toxins, and we measured that by looking at something called creatinine clearance. And that's really critical if the kidney is actually going to be able to sustain life and keep someone off dialysis. Officials say there are nearly 90,000 people in need of a kidney transplant and there aren't enough human donations to meet that need. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher at this hour. Dow futures are up one-tenth of a percent. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Clinicians who provide abortions in Massachusetts anticipate a new wave of confusion for their patients. WBOR's Martha Biebinger has more on the latest court ruling about a common abortion pill. A federal appeals panel has upheld some restrictions on mifepristone, one of two pills used in roughly half of all abortions in the U.S. But those restrictions are on hold until the Supreme Court hears the case. Dr. Tara Kumaraswamy is an OBGYN at UMass Memorial. I want to be very clear for our patients that they can continue to receive evidence-based care in Massachusetts and across the country. This does not impact the ability to utilize mifepristone at this time. Massachusetts has a stockpile of mifepristone in the event there are future limits on use of the drug. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. A man convicted in a 2015 massacre in Brazil is in the custody of Boston immigration officials. ICE officials say they arrested 29-year-old Antonio Vidal on Monday in New Hampshire. The former military police officer was convicted of 11 murders in Brazil. Officials say he was already in the U.S. when he was convicted for the crimes. Vidal faces more than a 200-year prison sentence. He'll remain in custody pending a hearing in immigration court.
Massachusetts is distributing more than $15 million to increase childcare access in the state. The grants will do, go to more than 80 organizations. They include local school districts, community nonprofits, and childcare centers. Money will also go to support youth mental health programming and services for families in the shelter system. The annual Fisherman's Feast kicks off in Boston's North End today. It's the festival's 113th anniversary. Louis Strazillo is the event's co-chair. He says the festivities will include music, cooking demonstrations, and more. Everybody always looks forward to the famous flight of the angel. We have three children just as angels. They both say a prayer to the Blessed Mother in Italian. One descends down from a fire escape and says a prayer to the Blessed Mother. It's been in National Geographic, and it's definitely a sight not to be missed. The Fisherman's Feast is the city's longest-running Italian festival. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. It was a loss for the Red Sox in D.C. last night. The team fell to the Washington Nationals by four runs. The final score was 6-2. to two. That leaves one more game between the teams this series. They'll play this afternoon to see who comes out on top. There's a chance of some patchy fog and drizzle yet this morning. Otherwise cloudy today with highs in the upper 70s. Tonight the clouds stick around and temperatures dip into the 60s. There's a chance of rain overnight. Then there's a good chance our Friday will start with showers, thunderstorms, and gusty winds. And those may last through most of the afternoon. Otherwise it'll be overcast and we'll have high temperatures in the mid-80s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Folded. And I'm Michelle Martin. In a few minutes, Florida public school teachers say they're confused by the array of rules they face as they return to the classroom. But first to West Maui, where residents are starting to head back to their homes or what's left of them as recovery from last week's wildfires continues. Disaster responders have loosened restrictions on parts of the island, but with the death toll still climbing and thousands of people now homeless, some residents are frustrated by what they perceive to be a slow recovery. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer has been reporting from Lahaina, Hawaii, and he's with us now to tell us what he's seeing. Gabriel, thanks so much for joining us. Sure thing, Michelle. Gabriel, just to start us off, what are you able to see? Well, they fully opened the main road into West Maui for the first time since the fire struck more than a week ago. Uh, The actual burn area is still off limits, but we were able to visit an aid hub in a beachside park just a few miles north of central Lahaina. And many people there still had really basic needs, things like pet food and underwear. and, And honestly, there's no real end in sight for now, as this is likely to be a really long recovery effort. Well, just from what we've all been able to see, the destruction was just enormous in Lahaina. Why do you think people say that the recovery is moving slowly? Well, there's a lot to be cautious about as they go through the burn area. Uh, For one thing, it's extraordinarily difficult to identify and even to find human remains. Uh, I talked with a forensic anthropologist, and she said it really takes a trained expert eye to spot, say, bone fragments in the rubble. 
And then there's a huge concern about toxics. This fire burns so many buildings and vehicles that it unleashed just a whole stew of hazardous chemicals. So search and rescue teams are moving extremely methodically. We've been hearing from local residents who say they're filling in the gaps that they feel have been left by their federal response. Are you hearing that? Uh, yeah, very much so. And, and this aid hub that we visited actually is a, a really good example. It's almost completely run by locals. And uh, talking to folks there, you get a sense of the, the tension between these grassroots aid efforts and the government response. Uh, Jeff Gracia lives just across the street from the aid station, and he's been volunteering every day at the info tent. It makes me kind of frustrated that, like, police telling us to start to move people towards the federally organized shelters just because we're more grassroots and not centralized, which is what they want, which is a valid concern, but also it's difficult because these are our people we're trying to take care of. You know, speaking of that, I'm just trying to think about how how this is all going to take place when so many people in the community are also victims themselves. Exactly. I mean, I, I talked to so many people who, who went through hell themselves and then just put their heads down to go help their neighbors. Um, I met a guy named Adam Perry, who's a former wildland firefighter himself and who, who lives in Lahaina. He wound up sheltering with a few dozen other people in a concrete parking structure as the fire passed. His own house was leveled, but Adam says his firefighting training just kicked in. I left the parking garage to go look for survivors and... Uh fire almost ate me up a couple times. I had to dive underneath the fire, went right over my back. Um, felt like more we were at war than at a fire. Concrete was exploding, things were blowing up right in front of you. And I never, I've never seen anything like it in my career. You really get the sense, Michelle, that people are still getting their heads around this unprecedented fire. One young man who lost his younger brother told me that it looked like paradise in hell. Mm, wow. That's NPR's Gabriel Spitzer from Lahaina in Maui. Gabriel, thank you so much. You're welcome. The devastation in Maui has survivors of another deadly wildfire reliving their ordeal. Watching and reading the news about Maui was incredibly shocking how deja vu it was. That's Richard Gore. He and his wife lost their home in the 2018 Camp Fire in Northern California. That fire killed 85 people, destroyed thousands of homes and other buildings, and pretty much raised the town of paradise. We were actually caught in gridlock in the middle of the fire. Flames are all around, and we just said, we're not going to die in our car. We understand and feel for the people in Maui. So how did Paradise residents make it through? Gore says he and his wife found comfort and support in their faith and their community. Two days after the fire, the churches were giving us toiletries, clothes, food. We uh, believe in God and believe that he took care of us and he will sustain us. But also besides that is friends, family, our church support. Campfire survivor Lauren Nelson also says the trauma takes a physical toll. I experienced vertigo and tinnitus, like ringing in the ear, for almost four months. I had times where I was driving and I had to pull over and I didn't know where I was. Here's Nelson's advice for wildfire survivors on Maui. Imagine someone that you love and care about died. Times your whole community, you have to retreat. And that's something I do want to express to the people of Maui. You need deep rest. Melissa Crick, president of the Paradise Unified School Board, urges wildfire survivors to ask for the resources they need, whatever they may be. 
I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we learn from our fire is it's okay to put on your Facebook that you don't need people to send you clothes, you need cash cards. Other residents asked the city for warning sirens before agreeing to rebuild in Paradise. Town officials agreed and started testing the new sirens this summer. Melissa Crick says there is no right way to deal with the loss. She says recovery is something you have to take one day at a time. And she invites people on Maui to reach out to her and others in Paradise. Because there is a wealth of knowledge there and we're happy to share. And Paradise loves you. We understand all too well exactly where you are. Right now, one of the things that is the most healing related to this process is sharing the information. Letting folks know, if I could go back and do something differently, I would take these steps sooner. The main thing the campfire survivors we spoke with want people on Maui to know is you're not alone. As the school year gets underway in Florida, some teachers say they are confused about how to adopt and adapt to new state laws and standards. Some are still waiting for guidance from their principals or county education leaders on issues like the so-called Don't Say Gay law, which bans sexual and gender instruction in all grades. The measure also bars teachers from using students' chosen pronouns. For more on this, we've called Andrew Spar. He is the head of Florida's Teachers Union, the Florida Education Association. Good morning, Mr. Spar. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. So, so what are you hearing from teachers about how they are adapting to these new laws and standards? Well, as I've traveled the state at the beginning of this school year, I've been talking to teachers, and what I continue to hear is that there's a lot of angst and concern and frustration. And uh, you know, some teachers are saying, I'm already so tired with trying to figure out what I need to do that I feel like it's the end of the year and it's just starting. Um, so that's very concerning for a profession that has felt under attack for a while and does not feel valued. And it is what has, I believe, led to one of the worst teacher and staff shortages we've ever seen. Hmm, so let's talk about that in a minute. But before we do, is the union doing anything to address some of these difficulties and concerns? Well, of course, we're continuing to raise awareness and we've issued guidance to our members on how to deal with some of these laws. But but even the guidance we've issued, uh, you know, there's a lot of holes in it because the state just simply won't clarify what's allowed and what isn't allowed. I was talking to a teacher yesterday whose school district gave them the rules. This was a social studies teachers that was color coded with green, yellow and red. Green saying these are the part of the rules that you're good with. Uh, these are the parts you should be careful with in the red as areas you should stay away from. And, you know, the teacher said, I don't even know what to do with that. How does that relate to my standards? And how does that relate to what I'm teaching in the classroom? So there is still just an awful lot of confusion. We continue to work to try to get clarity. We've called on the Department of Education to provide clarity. But yet again, the state is refusing to, to give clarity. So let's go to this question of the teacher vacancies. You're, the union says that there are about 900 more advertised teachers vacancies now than there were at the start of the last school year. I don't know if you have any way to ascertain this, but do you know or do you believe that these vacancies have something to do with these new laws? 
I absolutely do believe, as I've talked to teachers who have left the district, I actually talked to a teacher yesterday who is leaving her school district and going to teach in Georgia, and yesterday was her last day, and it's just the start of the school year. Um, and what we're hearing from teachers is that uh, they are frustrated with low and unfair pay in Florida. They're frustrated with these policies and laws that are coming out that are preventing them from teaching. Every teacher I talk to says, just let me teach. I just want to teach. I want to care about kids and help them grow and learn. And I don't think I can do that right now. But, you know, on, on, the, on the matter of these numbers, the state's education department disputes this and says that there are actually fewer teacher vacancies than this time last year, like 10 percent less, and that Florida's vacancy rate is actually less than the national average. Why, why, are there, why is there a dispute over the numbers? Why do they have different numbers than you do? So what we do is we go to every school district. We do this every year and have for the last seven years. We go to every school district's website and look at the number of posted vacancies. And I will tell you, when we look at those posted vacancies, you know, it, it could be there are more vacancies because the way districts post them, they may post some today, tomorrow, and the next day. And so if you look at them at one day, the numbers vary. We don't know how the state got their numbers. They haven't said. They just said, these are the numbers. And, and they're asking people to trust them without being able to verify. So I, I would just say that, you know, again, we're, we could argue over numbers, but the reality of it is we have a really bad teacher shortage. So really briefly, what kind of conversation do you think we'll be having at the end of this school year if you and I talk again? Well, look, I'll tell you from a parent perspective, my daughter is in ninth grade, my youngest. She just started high school. She does not have an English teacher to start the year. And this is the third year in a row now that my daughter has had part of the year without a teacher. In seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, there have been times where she has not had a teacher because a teacher left. Wow. That's Andrew Spar. He's president of the Florida Education Association. Mr. Spar, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Have a great day. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we preview this weekend's presidential election in Guatemala, where a former first lady will face off against the son of a former president in a turbulent race that experts say may be a crucial turning point for the country. It's 819. Former President Donald Trump faces his fourth indictment in four months, this time for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. It's much bigger than Watergate. Trump wanted to stay in office. He wanted to use Georgia to, as part of that plan. And so this is very different and much more troubling. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Overcast today with a high near 76. Tonight it stays cloudy and falls to lows in the upper 60s. There's a good chance of showers overnight, then a rainy Friday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms through mid-afternoon that may bring gusty winds. High temperatures will be around 84. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. And you can share your thoughts with WBUR by taking our listener survey. Tell us what you want to hear more or less of. Find it now at WBUR.org survey.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Prompt with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one -on -one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. In its 20 years long involvement in Afghanistan, the U.S. spent close to $1 trillion. Most of that money went to war fighting, but large amounts also just disappeared through fraud or theft. John Sopko tried to keep track while serving as the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. The only thing that really probably remains is the fact that we did influence a younger generation about the values of democracy, the values of a free and open society. And to that extent, that's the hope for the future. Now, two years after the fall of Kabul, Washington is sending aid to another war front, this time in Ukraine. The latest White House proposal would push humanitarian and military support there to more than $130 billion. Our colleague Steve Inskeep asked Sabko what Washington should have learned from Afghanistan. We tend to throw a lot of money at a problem, and we ignore the fact that you overwhelm a country. Now, in this case, in the Ukraine, we're spending a lot of money on weaponry, and this isn't a bad thing. It needs to be done. But the warning bell is send too much money too fast, and you don't have enough oversight, you're going to have wastage and other problems. The other issue is the corruption issue. That was something that was endemic in Afghanistan, and it is endemic in Ukraine. Now, the good news is that the president of the Ukraine and a number of people around him are trying to do something about the corruption. But it is problematic. We need people on the ground. You cannot do oversight remotely. I don't care what people tell you. You cannot do it. Trust me, I've been doing this for almost 50 years. You cannot do oversight remotely. Do you have reason to think that some meaningful percentage of USA to Ukraine is being misspent or stolen? You can't spend that much money without there being waste, fraud, and abuse. It's just as simple as that. If you're in the Biden administration, or really any administration, would you perhaps make a calculation that some waste is inevitable and does not matter? If, for example, you need to get $200 million to support the Ukrainian war effort, and even only half of it is properly spent. Well, it does some good. It does a lot of good, and it's an urgent situation. Well, there is going to be wastage. There is going to be pilferage. The question is, how much is too much? And also, one of the problems is the amount of very sophisticated weapons that are going in that could be disappearing. We're spending $2.5 billion in military assistance per month. That's seven times what we spent in Afghanistan at the height. 
So the question is, where are all those weapons going to end up? Would you want there to be an inspector general for Ukraine as there was for Afghanistan? Well, there are already, you know, three IGs there. My experience is the more the merrier. Why wouldn't you have some additional support? What a great message that would send to the donor community, to the American contractors, to the international players, to the Ukraine, if we created a special IG for Ukraine. We want an efficient way to spend our taxpayer dollars. Would you argue that your oversight succeeded in Afghanistan, even though the overall mission seems to have failed? Well, those people we indicted got convicted. Those people who committed fraud that we could find, we, we, we punished them. Uh, did it fail? Well, I, I didn't do the war fighting. I can only bring a horse to water. Our job is to present the facts and make recommendations on how to improve things. But I, I can't I can't I can't take credit for the failure or the successes in Afghanistan. Uh, we just stated the facts and, you know, made the recommendations based upon them. John Sopko, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Folks on social media are hyping up a cult classic horror movie from the 80s. But here's the catch. The movie, it doesn't exist. It's called Zaposa, and it is the brainchild of an 18-year-old musician from Oxford, England, named Emily Jeffrey. Just a few nights ago, she made a post on TikTok that said, what if we created a fake 80s horror movie called Zaposa? She challenged her followers to comment about it everywhere they could to make people think it was a real film. Why, you ask? Jeffrey says it started as a way to spread her music. My music is heavily 80s inspired, heavily inspired by like the kind of horror genre, I suppose. And so like I've always made links to like my songs belonging in chase scenes and things like that. Jeffrey says she can even picture how Zapotha would end, and she has the perfect song in mind. It'd be like the villain. Oh my god, it'd be the villain showing up at the end and like looking up at the camera after you think that they've like died. And then the end credits would roll, and it would be so cool, and then the song plays out as the credits are rolling. That's totally what it would be. The TikTok that revealed this song and started the Zapotha trend has over 7 million views. Emily Jeffrey says the fan response to the concept of Zapotha has been mind-blowing. There's fan fiction, there's like movie posters, cosplays as well, people are dressing up as the characters. It's such a cool way that people are expressing themselves at the moment and I, I love it. Ana Diaz is a culture writer for Polygon. She says the community forming around the fake movie Zapotha is not that different from fandoms of real movies. Co-creation is a deeply fulfilling experience. People want to contribute to something that's larger than themselves. And there's something really exhilarating about seeing others interact with it and build on it. For her part, Emily Jeffrey is content to let the Zapotha community decide what comes next. I don't want to just take Zapotha and then decide exactly what it's about and what it is and take that away from all of these really creative amazing people like i only came up with the name and everyone else has done everything else that's emily jeffrey creator of zapotha the film not coming to a theater near you this is npr news
Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Following the Supreme Court decision in June on affirmative action in higher education, we visit a Boston-based nonprofit summer program that aims to help high school students from low-income neighborhoods get into elite universities. It's 829. Coming to City Space on Friday, August 25th, the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through it. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The death toll from wildfires in Hawaii has risen to at least 111. Search teams aided by dogs continue to locate human remains in the charred rubble of houses, businesses, and vehicles on the island of Maui. Wildfires in Northern California and Oregon are prompting evacuations in some areas. NPR's Tilda Wilson says the fires were sparked by lightning strikes. At least 19 fires have sparked during thunderstorms in the Klamath National Forest. The largest is the Head Fire, which is rapidly spreading in high wind conditions. The fire is 20 minutes outside of Wairika, near the site of last year's McKinney Fire, which killed four people. Jonathan Tijerina works at a shelter there that takes care of dogs during evacuations. He says they don't have many dogs yet, but they're preparing for a repeat of last year. There was close to or more than 200 dogs on the property, and people were also camping here. So it was quite an operation. Hot temperatures, low humidity, and high winds have kept much of the Pacific Northwest on high alert for wildfires. Temperatures aren't expected to cool down until later this weekend. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. The district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, is asking a court to try former President Donald Trump and 18 others beginning in early March of next year. The 19 were indicted for their roles and allegedly trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Boston will soon be represented on the T's Board of Directors. The position was included in the state's newly passed budget. Mayor Michelle Wu is now seeking public input for ideas and nominations for the role. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports. In a tweet, Mayor Wu asked Boston residents to share their suggestions for candidates to represent the city on the T's Board. Stacy Thompson, the executive director of the nonprofit Livable Streets, says the person who gets the gig will be a voice for the city's service and safety concerns. The person in this role needs to be able to hold all of those priorities at once and work with the MBTA staff and the administration to get more money from the legislature. City officials will take public input on the board seat until September 5th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Officials with Boston Medical Center say plans to redevelop Shattuck Hospital will not result in tent encampments and open-air drug use. That's a response to concerns from community groups that say changes to the Jamaica Plain site will create conditions similar to those in the area known as Mass and Cass. BMC is working to provide substance abuse treatment and emergency shelter space at the location. Officials tell the Boston Herald, the center will focus on longer-term recovery programs.
The new Bedford City Council might put a pause on implementing the city's mini-alcohol bottle ban. The city licensing board voted to implement the ban last month. Today, the city council might send the ban back to the board for reconsideration. Critics of the ban say it hurts small businesses. Supporters say it prevents litter and underage drinking. Other communities, including Newton, Chelsea and Falmouth, have similar bans. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity. Because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Red Sox lost to the Nationals yesterday despite a late-game rally to tie the game. The Sox ultimately gave up back-to-back home runs during the eighth inning. That left the Sox with a 6-2 loss. The series is now tied. The teams play their final game tonight. Highs in the mid-70s today under cloudy skies. Still overcast tonight, and it falls into the 60s. Rain possible overnight, then cloudy skies. May give way to showers and thunderstorms Friday morning through mid-afternoon. Highs tomorrow will be in the low 80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. Now we're going to look ahead at the presidential election this weekend in Guatemala. The first round in June was met with apathy, but it produced a surprise candidate and a real choice about where the country is headed. To step back a second, Guatemala had been a place of hope a few years ago. A brave movement backed by the U.S. and U.N. was fighting corruption and impunity. But the establishment fought back, closing corruption probes, sidelining judges, prosecutors, and even presidential hopefuls. NPR's Ada Peralta is with us now from Mexico City to talk about how this vote could determine which way Guatemala goes next. Ada, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Michelle. So the country is down to a runoff vote between two candidates for president. As briefly as you can, tell us about who they are and who's backing them. So uh, the establishment is backing Sandra Torres from 2008 to 2012. She was the first lady of Guatemala, and she led her husband's social programs, which made her very popular. But in 2019, when Guatemala was on this voracious anti-corruption campaign, she was jailed. She was charged with misusing campaign funds. But once this anti-corruption task force was disbanded, the charges against her were dropped, and she launched a presidential campaign. The surprise candidate is Bernardo Arevalo, and he He also has a political bloodline. His father was the first democratically elected president in Guatemala in the mid-40s. And he's been an ambassador and deputy foreign minister. He ran an anti-corruption campaign, but his party didn't have much money. He was the one candidate you didn't see on billboards, so no one thought he could actually make it to a second round. But here he is, and his campaign has reinvigorated this whole election process. You know, Guatemala was once a focus of the U.S. and the U.N. trying to address crime there. What Mm -hmm. happened to that effort? It's dead. 
Uh, there was a UN-backed task force that conducted hundreds of investigations, but they were kicked out of the country. Many judges and prosecutors have fled, uh, or they've been bought off. And we've seen some of the effects of that during the presidential campaign. The candidate who was leading in the polls during the first round was an outsider. Uh, he presented himself as an anti-corruption crusader, but he was disqualified five weeks before the first round of this election. It was a move uh, that was condemned as anti-democratic by the the international community. Um, and he said it was the corrupt of Guatemala trying to stop any effort to bring them to justice. But this campaign did change during the second round. Suddenly, corruption is the talk on the campaign. Even Sandra Torres, who had kind of sidestepped the issue, is now clear. Jail the corrupt, she says. So you've been you've been telling us about lots of problems with these elections. Given all that, what are the chances that this vote, however it turns out, will be disputed? Well, there's already a lot of uncertainty. The offices of Bernardo Revalo, the surprise candidate, have been raided, and the court actually ruled that he should be disqualified from the race. Electoral authorities said that they didn't know if that decision was legal, so the elections and the campaigns have continued. Uh, but also polls show that Guatemalans have little confidence in their electoral authorities. So the table is set for either side to contest the results, and the table is set for a legal battle. And the elections are this Sunday. And when are we going to have preliminary results? Overnight. We should get them. All right. That's NPR's Ada Peralta in Mexico. Ada, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. California has one of the largest prison populations in the country, in part because paroled inmates often end up back in prison. Governor Gavin Newsom wants to address that problem by piloting a new model for prisoner rehabilitation. Scott Schaefer from member station KQED in San Francisco reports on that controversial plan at San Quentin Prison. On a recent morning at San Quentin, about 100 incarcerated men are out in the prison yard. They're lifting weights, playing pickleball, and shooting hoops. San Quentin is best known for its death row, but there hasn't been an execution here since 2006. And now those inmates are being moved to other prisons, and death row is being closed. Many of the remaining prisoners here will one day be let out on parole. So Governor Newsom wants to rethink how these inmates are prepared for the day they're released. If San Quentin can do it, it can be done anywhere else. This is about reducing recidivism in this state. The idea is to convert an old furniture factory at the prison into a kind of college campus with classrooms and job training. A common space within the reimagined prison where correctional officers and residents can interact and support each other. That's Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, the governor's senior advisor on San Quentin's future. Steinberg describes a reimagined penitentiary focused on giving skills to incarcerated people before they're paroled and changing the fundamental dynamics between inmates and correctional officers. We want to create an atmosphere where the residents and the correctional officers are interacting as human beings. San Quentin already has a rich array of rehabilitation programs like college prep classes. Newsom's plan would expand those while adding new ones. Jason Jones was paroled from here five years ago. He's a graduate of San Quentin's computer coding program and now helps lead it. He says learning that skill changed everything. I got introduced to technology, never really grew up with a computer. I didn't even know what coding was before I actually get into class. And next thing I know, before, three weeks before I go home, I'm actually signing a contract with a tech company. It's the first job I ever had in my life. But there have been critics. 
Some say it's all about Newsom planning to run for president in 2028, something he denies. When the plan was rolled out five months ago, the state's nonpartisan legislative analyst criticized its striking lack of details, like who will be eligible, how much will it cost, and what the new campus will look like. Those details won't be coming until the end of the year. Republican Assemblyman Tom Lackey from Southern California says it was almost insulting. People that even supported the rehabilitative process were like, we need more detail, right? This was not just a partisan criticism. Nonetheless, at Newsom's urging, the legislature approved $380 million to get started. Other critics wonder if it's the best place to put so much money. Katie Dixon with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners wants to see more funding go to community-based programs that are already making a difference in the lives of those on parole. Why should we be finding money to rebuild this prison when we could be putting that money into more proven opportunities for people when they get out of prisons? San Quentin inmate Juan Haynes, who's been incarcerated 27 years, says he thinks the key to this project's success or failure lies in finding the right inmates to participate. There's a lot of people who enter California prisons, and they, they're just, rehabilitation is the last thing on their minds. But then there's a lot of people in California prisons that are really looking for opportunities to better their lives. Newsom is pushing to finish the first phase of this transformation by the end of 2025, a year before he leaves office. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the economic cost of the devastation from the Maui wildfires and the price of recovery. The Federal Disaster Relief Fund is nearly empty. President Biden has asked Congress for $12 billion to refill it. Cloudy and mid-70s today, overcast and upper 60s tonight, rain overnight with showers and thunderstorms likely Friday morning through mid-afternoon. It'll be in the mid-70s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a new report finds that the largest hospitals in Massachusetts are the most expensive. The report by the Center for Health Information and Analysis shows that it costs more to receive care at academic medical centers like Massachusetts General Hospital. According to data from 2021, prices at those hospitals are 9 percent above the state average. The report also finds the cost of insurance premiums is outpacing inflation. An Andover-based organ transplant technology company is acquiring a charter flight operator. Transmedics Group says it's buying Summit Aviation. The company will combine the two to create Transmedics Aviation. It says it'll be the first national provider of charter flights exclusively dedicated to organ transplants. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, searching globally for value in both traditional and alternative investments to pursue attractive, sustainable returns for clients. LoomisSales.com and the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. For six weeks every summer, the dining halls and dormitories at Amherst College fill with rising high school seniors from across the country. They're called Thrive Scholars, and they're talented students from low-income backgrounds with the ambition of attending a selective college or university. WBUR's Max Larkin visited this year's Summer Academy, where the scholars make their final preparations for the application process that starts a memory. During the school year, Stephen Shane teaches writing at Emerson College. But for the past nine summers, he's come out to the campus of Amherst College to do the same for these soon-to-be college students. Here, Shane is in class teaching the James Baldwin essay, Notes of a Native Son. Let me ask you this. When you think of, like, memory and how your senses can kind of activate it, what are some examples of that? The 20 or so students perk right up. One mentions the smell of gasoline, and they go from there. Like, my family lives in Seoul, so I'd visit them, and it's, like, super polluted there. So every time I smell something like that, I feel like I should be, like, in Korea. Like, my body's almost confused a little bit. They had the song called Every Time We Touch by Cascade. That song, like, oh, my God. Every time I hear that song, I just, like, dang, like, I miss 2012. Like, life is just so much easier back then. I ain't had nothing to worry about besides, like, trying to... Catch the newest episodes on YouTube. The song was Colgando en Tus Manos. How's it go? Um, <laughs> These students spend busy days on Amherst campus, marked by intense coursework, with 90 total hours of advanced math and 90 of writing. They're admitted to the fully funded program based on maintaining nearly a straight-A average in high school. And also, based on their backgrounds, nearly all the scholars are students of color from low-income households. The goal is to get these students ready, both to get into the nation's top colleges and to, well, thrive once enrolled. Beyond that, the Boston-based organization has another goal, that scholars will graduate and go on to join American corporate and civic leadership. 20 years in, the program shows results. Over 40% of scholars go on to one of the nation's top 12 most selective schools. But now that the U.S. Supreme Court has rolled back the use of race in college admissions, instructors like Stephen Shane recognize the challenge ahead. We had class the day after that decision was announced, and the students were certainly shook by it. That decision adds stakes to the already important college essay. It made it clear that students remain free to discuss their racial or ethnic background. Part of Shane's job is to help his students draft those essays. And he says they don't exactly feel free, based on their questions in class. Does this mean I have to talk about my identity now in the essay? What if I don't want to talk about my race necessarily here? You know, it's kind of taking away choices the students have in terms of talking about themselves. Many scholars have already set their sights on a dream school. I like to say brown because I'm black. I feel like brown has like a lot of diversity or so they like highlight that. My dream school is Harvard. Um, But and then I want to I aspire to become a lawyer or a forensic psychologist. Um, my dream school is Columbia University. New York? Yes. In the city. <laughs> yes. Where dreams are made of. Yes. <laughs> That's Farheel Omar of Charlestown, Joshua Rodriguez Ortiz of Bilrica, and Hannah Adelaide of Norwood. And despite the court's decision, they aren't discouraged about their chances of getting in. This summer has given them confidence. In fact, Adelaide's one worry is about leaving the academy behind and returning to her majority white home district. 
I fear just like leaving such a welcoming and tight-knit community of people of the same backgrounds, mindsets, that I might fall back into that like, ooh, I don't know if I'm good enough to get into these places. There are real reasons for anxiety. According to a recent study by economists from Harvard and Brown, the admissions process at top colleges tends to favor the nation's wealthiest students. For Steve Stein, the CEO of Thrive Scholars, that's a missed opportunity. The data shows that these colleges are pipelines to leadership in the country. Whether you think it should be or not, they are. And if we want leadership in this country to be diverse, we need to figure out a way to bring, to bring diversity to the higher ed. And in a world with the Supreme Court decision, it's going to be much harder. In the wake of the court's ruling, the Thrive organization is planning to scale up. They'll add 10 summer academies nationwide in the next five years. Each year, Stein says there are thousands of young people who are qualified for elite higher education and can go on to change the world. The task is only to reach them. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on political insecurity and violence in Ecuador, where another presidential candidate was assassinated Monday ahead of elections this weekend. It's 8.50. Ukraine can calculate the agony of war in many ways. Lives lost, homes destroyed. But the mental health crisis that war has brought on is harder to measure. We have changed and adapted to the realities of the war. I'm Elsa Chang, how soldiers and civilians are trying to cope on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. A federal court ruling could further restrict use of the abortion medication mifepristone while opening the door to a likely Supreme Court decision on the issue. Hawaii's governor says he'll protect residents against predatory investors seeking cheap property following the wildfires in Maui. And congressional leaders are considering a stopgap funding measure to avoid a government shutdown this fall. Mid-70s today under cloudy skies. Those clouds stick around tonight as it falls into the 60s. There's rain possible overnight, and on Friday there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms that may bring gusty winds. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. More homes are being built, but how long will that last? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Construction of new homes increased in July, according to new data out this week from the Commerce Department. Housing starts rose nearly 4% from June and nearly 6% from the year before. Generally speaking, more supply is welcome news to home buyers, but there are signs that the trend might not last much longer. Marketplace's Henry Epp has more. 
Yes, builders are breaking ground on more new homes right now, but further up the housing pipeline, it's a different story. That's because permits for new homes rose just slightly in July and were down 13 percent compared to last year, meaning fewer homes will have paperwork in place to break ground in the coming months. One big factor here is a decline in permits for multifamily housing projects. A lot of apartment construction started up in the last few years, so with all that new supply about to come online, there's less appetite from developers to build more. Plus, interest rates are now expected to remain higher for longer, raising building costs. Mortgage rates could start to weigh down the number of new single-family homes, too. They rose to nearly 7 percent earlier this month. If more home buyers decide the cost of a mortgage is too high, that could influence how many new units home builders decide to add to the country's housing stock. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. Every year, the Federal Reserve throws a big event in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's kind of like a party for central bankers and economists, an economic policy party. It is called the Economic Policy Symposium. Anyway, this year's event gets going a week from today. Last year, Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke at the event and warned of economic pain coming down the road. So far, that pain has not materialized in a big way. So what's he going to say this year? Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer takes a look. Powell's Jackson Hole speech last year was short, but not especially sweet. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. For Chris Rupke, chief economist at Forward Bonds, it was... Kind of like dad is mad. Rupke says last year, Powell wanted to remind us that the road back to the Fed's target of 2% inflation was long. Now, Rupke says he'd be shocked if Powell said a rate hike was definitely on the table at the Fed's September meeting. The Fed may be closer to the end, certainly, than the beginning. Then I would expect Powell's speech to reflect that. After all, the consumer price index has gone from peaking at about 9% last year to about 3% now, says Stony Brook University economist Stephanie Kelton. Here's what she'd like to hear from Powell. Inflation has come down significantly since we were together last year. Let's all go fishing. But she expects Powell will say there could be more rate hikes, depending, as usual, on the data. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. All right. Speaking of data, let's do the numbers. Dow, uh, Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P futures are all up in the one to four tenths percent range. The Dow future up 39 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.285 percent, very high. And New York City is the latest city to ban TikTok on all government-owned devices over security and user privacy concerns. It joins a growing number of U.S. cities and states that have done the same. New York State had actually already banned TikTok on state-issued mobile devices. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Residents of Maui are grappling with just how much they've lost in last week's wildfires. At least 111 people are confirmed to have died. FEMA, the Red Cross, and volunteer organizations are providing emergency aid. President Biden has asked Congress for $12 billion to refill the nearly empty disaster relief fund. Compounding the human misery the fires left behind are the economic costs. Billions of dollars in damage to physical infrastructure, 
but also damage to the island's future, its economic future. Allie Budner reports. Katie Folio helps run a network of occupational and physical therapy clinics on Maui, including one in Lahaina, the town that was almost completely wiped out by the fires. We thought that the clinic was gone. We'd heard that Island Grocery was burned down, and that's right next door to us. But miraculously, the clinic still stands, one building surrounded by the charred remains of other structures. There's nothing around it. Like, it's, it's going to be tough to go back. It's going to be tough for, it's just going to be tough. Like many businesses, the Lahaina Clinic is on hold as the whole community deals with tragedy. And in the meantime, Folio says staff are scrambling to support clients who've lost everything. They helped one family replace a child's specialized wheelchair that burned in the fire. We are already on Maui short of resources, especially for pediatrics and for kids and healthcare. And so I worry about what the future holds. Her clinic and other Maui businesses may not know the full measure of the losses for a while, but the economic damage from Hawaii's wildfires could be as high as $16 billion. That's according to AccuWeather, which estimates the total economic toll of climate disasters. We look at things like job and wage losses. Jonathan Porter is chief meteorologist with AccuWeather. Crops, infrastructure damage, interruption to supply chain, business losses, flight cancellations and delays. Porter says there's also the damage to residents' mental and physical health. We had all types of smoke, lots of uh, dangerous particulate matter lofted into the air that people were breathing. And of course, there's tourism, one of the top sources of income for Hawaii's economy, which was just recovering from the pandemic. It's no question that this will definitely exacerbate an already challenging situation. Micah Kane is the CEO and president of the Hawaii Community Foundation, which has raised more than $27 million to provide aid to victims of the fires. He's grateful for the outpouring of support, but he also says it's hard to see this emergency eclipse years of progress on important local economic issues. Prior to the disaster, our organization was heavily involved in attempting to get more affordable housing built within Maui County. But for now, Kane says what people need is emergency shelter and help getting back on their feet. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Overcast and mid-70s today, cloudy and upper 60s tonight. A chance of rain overnight, then cloudy tomorrow with showers and thunderstorms likely through about mid-afternoon. Those may bring gusty winds. It'll be in the low 80s. Skies clear Saturday for a mostly sunny day in the upper 70s. Sunny and low 80s on Sunday. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.